Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer, and today we're talking about the Democratic Party's problems with their messaging. Our guest is Jennifer Fernandez Ancona, and she's a vice president and chief strategy officer at Way to Win. That's a progressive organization that spent $110 million on the 2020 election, most of it aimed not at TV ads, but at grassroots organizations. Way to Win just broke out a detailed study of all of the TV ads for Democratic House candidates in 2020, and it showed that a lot of it was not money well spent. Democrats spent $21 million on ads talking about how bipartisan they were, but not on climate change, or that mentioned the word black lives. Meanwhile, Republicans spent millions ripping them as socialists and extremists and as clones of Nancy Pelosi. This is an important issue for Democrats as the party in power usually loses seats in the midterm election, and the Democrats can't afford to lose too many, or else the Republicans will take over the House. So let's break down the results of this study a little bit more during my conversation with Jennifer Fernandez and Kona. Jen Fernandez and Kona, from your home in Oakland to my home in Oakland, welcome to It's All Political. And I, I want to take this moment to publicly apologize to you because I should have said welcome back to It's All Political. We did a podcast, it was about a year ago, right, right after lockdown. I believe it was one of the first ones I did here from the <clears throat> home studio, uh, aka my youngest daughter's bedroom. And uh, But because of some technical problems, it did not materialize for the first and only time in its all political history. And, uh, and of course, by technical problems, uh, that, that translates to Joe screwed up. <laughs> so I wanted to apologize to you, and we're going we're gonna to make this happen. No problem. Today. So your organization, Way to Win, just did a breakdown of all the TV ads in the 2020 election in the House races. Uh, these are the candidate ads, the C ads, outside groups. And, uh, you know, we think that... The Democrats did well. They won the House. Uh, you know, they, uh, but, you know, in 2022, it's a, a midterm election year. Traditionally, the party in power loses a lot of seats and Democrats can't afford to lose a lot. Your study pointed out that the Democrats had plenty of money. They outspent Republicans by 37% on TV ads, but they won zero of the 27 races that were rated as toss ups. And that's, where your study focuses on on messaging, tell us first of all a little bit. Give us a quick summary of what the uh, your your study looked at and why did it look at these things? Yeah, absolutely. So we analyzed the transcripts of all of the ads that were tracked by a group called Ad Impact, and so we were able to analyze actually the words and the word frequency in particular. Of those ads, so it's a it's a unique way to be able to look at the message, uh, be, to be able to actually just look at the transcripts of the words, and then we commissioned the creation of a set of tools that we um, used some other data sources to feed into that, like Daily Coast Elections and the Cook Report, so that you could actually. Um, search on certain districts, search on keywords, search on, it actually is a set of tools that enables anyone to actually view the advertising, which is just not normally what's available to people. So, you know, normally you might be in a district where you see some ads or maybe you saw some online, but there's never been a chance to see it all like as a whole, uh, to be able to actually go up um, sort of a 30,000 foot view and see it all together. And these ad tools actually allow you to go in and view 
any ad that we that we studied as part of the transcript search. So when you look up, you know, Latino um, as a keyword for the districts, you can actually go in and and watch all the ads that you want to. And and it's really um, instructive because it's a chance to really see what the message was. So we we did that because, you know, you, like you said, we spent $243 million on TV ads. And, you know, I come from an organization, Way to Win, that started in the wake of Trump's election in 2016. And we, we moved $150 million, which is a lot of money. We moved $150 million to a grassroots organizing and kind of movement building strategy coming into 2020. And so it's just a realization that that's a lot of money, $243 million. And we have to shine a light on it to look at like, well, where where did that go? Like, what did we actually say? A lot of times we talk about TV ads versus organizing or, you know, this much was spent on TV ads or too much money on TV ads. And, And that may be true. You know, we probably do need to spend less on TV, but what's more important is what did we say in those ads? Like, what were we actually saying to people um, when we were putting that TV advertising forward? And that's just a piece that we felt wasn't um, being looked at enough. And there was a lot of um, quickness to blame. A lot of people <laughs> coming out of those those losses, like you said, zero for 27. So it felt really important to us to actually examine it more closely and to examine, like, Again, the message, the 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 words, the like, what are we saying to voters? And so I would I would say like what we found was really three big things that we can then dive into different aspects of. But one is we didn't really talk about the right things. Um, we ignored our own base, and then Republicans used our silence to define our agenda to voters. And and those are really the biggest findings that we that we came out of with the study well let's let's dive into this a little bit and, and and we should probably also say that you know tv ads while we know that they are uh, uh anyone under 50 40 doesn't really right. watch them <laughs> uh uh they still are they absorb the most amount of spending in, uh, yes. in most campaigns so the problem is, is is one of the problems is the is the message when the where democrats talked about health care Republicans talked about Nancy Pelosi and and rip calls for defunding mm-hmm. the police. Now you think this would you know favor Democrats, um, but you know you you point to a survey in your study that found that the the most that healthcare was the third most important issue for, right. for voters behind COVID and right. jobs and the economy. Only nine percent of people found that healthcare right. was important. What what did that tell you? Did they um, you know the Democrats spent sixty four million dollars on ads that mentioned pre existing yeah. conditions? Were they were they just running an old campaign or running what worked in twenty eighteen? What what did that yeah. tell you? Well, it it tells me um, that I believe that that is a poll tested message. I believe that there was a lot of polling that looked at the those issues and said that if you use these words, it works better than if you don't. I'm sure it just feels like a poll driven message versus a message that actually was connected to what Americans cared about the most. And that I think is a really key lesson because ultimately, like what we're trying, what we need to try to do with our message is 
is like connect the fact that democratic policies on the economy are popular. They're more popular than Republican policies on the economy. And so, but we haven't connected the dots with voters enough to actually tell that story. And to me, this is a key, a key aspect of this, of the finding is that the economy is the most important issue, but we didn't really talk about the economy. We didn't tell a story about the economy. And even when we talked about healthcare, we didn't talk about it in an economic way. We talked about it in a detailed policy way. You know, pre-existing conditions is a detailed policy term. It's not a values-based frame. It's not an economic-based frame. So we do see, when you look at the Republicans, you see taxes and Nancy Pelosi. And that tells you right away what the story is. You know, Democrats are going to raise your taxes. Nancy Pelosi is the ringleader of it all. Like, when you look at pre-existing conditions, most people don't really get it. It's not an emotional term in the same way that taxes and Nancy Pelosi are clearly dr- emotionally driven um, terms for their own side. So what what's a better way, when you say it, talking about it in healthcare in an economic way, what is a better way to talk about that as a, as a values message as opposed to getting into the, the policy weeds of pre-existing conditions, which which can be an emotional appeal if you say it the right way, I guess. Yeah. What, what, what are you thinking well, of? I would look I would look to what they did in Georgia in the Senate runoffs. That was absolutely the most um, unbelievable political feat that we have seen in a long time to have elected those two senators yep. in a runoff just short weeks after the regular election. And how they talked about it was about, you know, um, like, we're going to put checks in your pocket. We're going to make sure you have the vaccine. We're going to give access to healthcare for people who don't have it, who are struggling. They talked about real people the and what's going on in their lives. And then the benefits that would come to them, they led with that. They led with the benefits that would come to people if they voted for them. And then they also called out what the Republicans were doing. And this is a really important part of the messaging that we also didn't see when we when we looked and this kind of gets into the next part. When we looked at the the messaging through the ad study, we didn't see Democrats calling out the Republicans for what they are. We saw them actually doing the opposite and in many ways lifting up Republicans in positive ads, um, emphasizing bipartisanship and working across the aisle much more than Republicans did. When Republicans spent all of their money, almost all of their money, tearing, trying to tear us down and calling us extreme and vilifying us. So... That was a, that's, let's, let's jump to that. Cause there's a couple of things I want to go back to yeah. closely, but I want to talk about the use of bipartisan bipartisanship. Uh, Democrats spent $21 million on ads that mentioned the word bipartisanship or yeah. alluded to it, according to your study. Um, and you know, people always think, I think this is a Washington frame. We're like, Oh, bi- bipartisanship is great. We all should do that, but it's not realistically. Uh, yeah. And, and, <laughs> and they they talk so much about bipartisanship. The second most thing they Democrats talk about, but they never talked about climate yeah. change. They never talked about about uh, voting yeah. rights. What what does that say? What is what is the uh, what's what's the challenge of that? And and what should they? How should they do about bipartisan? What should they do about bipartisanship? Yeah, I mean it's it's, a, it's the question of the hour right now. But I would say. Um, the, the danger in emphasizing bipartisanship in a context where your opposition, they spent $87 million on ads that vilify us and paint us as extreme. And so in that context, 
if you're lifting up working with them across the aisle, you're essentially normalizing their attacks. You're by not calling it out and by actually just it's an old I think it's an old idea, honestly, that hasn't caught up to where the Republican Party has actually come and brought us. And I think that that's that is like a theme, right? It's like pre-existing conditions. Like it was a little bit of an old idea. Maybe it worked in 2018, but we we didn't do enough to actually innovate on what we're saying. And that's my biggest fear going into 2022 is like, we can't do that again. We, we, we absolutely will lose if we do that again. And so we're really trying to sound this alarm that like we need to innovate and, and rethink how we're actually delivering our message to people. So, and then the other, the other piece I would say is that like you mentioned climate change, voting rights, like all of these issues are really popular. Like I said, again, like I said before, I'll, Almost everything we're trying to get done is popular with voters. We, but what we haven't done is told a story that connects the dots that, that helps those voters see that it's Democrats that are the ones that they should vote for because Democrats are the ones that are actually advancing those issues. We tend to run away from our issues rather than actually leaning in and telling our story in our, on our own terms. And we have to do that with our base because our base is really diverse. Our, you know, when you look at the people who voted for Biden, you, when you look at the exit polls, which is the best thing you can look at right now, it's like about half white people and half people of color. And within that half people of color, it's black, Latino, API, Native American. It's very diverse. Each of those communities is very diverse of in a, of itself. And so that's our challenge. Like, how do we tell a story to that coalition? When you look at the other side, it's literally, it's 90% white. Like, it, it's really different, like, to have a, like, half and half diverse coalition and to have a, a not, you can't even call it a coalition, like, to have an audience that is really 90, 95% white. It's just very different, but a lot of our messaging has mostly focused on that. It's kind of been white centric, honestly, and it's been a, like a focus on how do we pull these white people over who, you know, used to like Obama and now they like Trump. And the reality is there's just way more people out there to persuade. And I think like what we believe is the way to persuade them is by like, like I said, leaning into those policies that are popular, the ideas that are popular and, and telling a real story, an economic based story that appeals to that, like leans into shared values. And what can we accomplish when we come together across our differences? We'll have more of our conversation about democratic messaging with Jennifer Fernandez Ancona after this short break. You said Democrats, according to the study, Democrats were six times as likely to run a positive ad as Republicans. But mm -hmm. the, as the study found, you alluded to just now, they didn't mention their base. There is no, no ads mentioned the words, quote, right. black lives. Uh, Latino was the word Latino, Latinx, whatever, uh, barely right. mentioned. Uh, you're suggesting that uh, Democrats use a, quote, race class mm -hmm. narrative. To, to push back on some of these Republican attacks. What is a race class mm -hmm. narrative and how mm -hmm. would it work? Well, a race class narrative, um, it's a framework for messaging that was developed coming out of 28 or coming into 2018, I believe. Um, and it was developed by uh, a few scholars, um, Anat Shanker Osorio, Ian Haney Lopez, and Heather McGee. And what it, what it, the, the core of it really says is that when you're talking about a multiracial democracy, which we are, um, 
you you want to talk about economics um, and you also want to talk about race together. You want to talk about them both together because you can't if you don't talk about race at all, you um, you leave yourself open, like exactly like I said about this study, you leave yourself open to the other side talking about race, which we know that's all they do. All they do is talk about race in a way that is divisive. Um, people, we call it dog whistle messaging. It's It comes out of the Reagan era and it, it, it's still with us today. Um, very much a message that tries to divide people. It's division as a tactic. So a lot of times, you know, the, you'll see on the left or on the Democrat side, like, we should just talk only about the economy. You'll hear that, like only jobs. And let's just talk about jobs and just talk about economics. But if you only talk about economics and you don't talk about race, you leave yourself vulnerable to the other side. But if you only talk about race, it is also not good because people need to be able to see themselves in a broader message. So the race class narrative is is a way of it's a t- it's really a story that is meant to start with number one like say what you're for like talk about the vision like I said in Georgia Georgia is a perfect example of a race class narrative playing out because you have talk about what the benefits what are we going to get well what is going to happen what's the future going to look like not what we're against not what we don't want but like actually what we do want what is it going to look like it's going to look like checks in your pocket shots in your arm like health care voting rights these are all the things we're going to do and then you talk about um you talk about the division you call out the racial division you actually have to name it and then you have and you have to name an enemy so part of the story is the whole story is naming who's the bad guy and so you have to call it out and in georgia it was so clear because it was these two senators who were like profiting off the pandemic like greed was you know they were motivated by greed they were not doing their jobs they were not delivering for people so they they called out the enemy in that way of like they are these elite greedy people who are only out for themselves and using their government and policy to enrich themselves and leaving everyone else behind so that's the enemy and then the third part is like multiracial solidarity and the idea like that's how we make change like the only way that we've ever made change before is when we come together across our differences and we actually join together for the common good and what's good for all of us and so you lean into the idea of you know in georgia it was so perfect because it was like we just did it we just elected joe biden now we can do it again like let's let's do this it gives voters and people agency in the story and it, it helps them see themselves in the story Okay, that's and that's that's some specific examples about how how those ads would look. What about a, a pushback ad on on defund the police? Now, very few, if if any, Democratic lawmakers uh, really want to zero out police right. budgets. But you know, this is but the the, the phrase right. is out there. Uh, it's a very powerful one. Yeah. Um, what should the pushback be on defund the police? Because as according to your study, that was a phrase that was that turned up in a lot it was, of ads. It's true. Republicans. It's true. And I would go back to, again, that idea of thing, the things that are popular. So, yes, the term defund the police is not popular. We've seen that in the polling. But the idea of community for safety is popular. Like the idea of we know what um, we know what makes us safe. Like we know how our, how to make our neighborhood safe. And it's like schools and jobs and support it's not you know necess- you don't go automatically go to only police it's it's a diverse array of things that we need to make communities safe so 
it, when you lean into what's popular, you can you can talk about like, what do we need to fund our lives? What do we need to support to deliver black dreams? It goes back to like actually saying what you're for, right? It goes back to the idea of leaning into the picture you're trying to create. And, and it's true that people support policing with people support uh, more community driven policing and people actually support investing in um, mental health and social service as a first step rather than just calling the police. I mean, it really it really would be revolutionary if in our cities and our communities, when someone was having a mental health crisis, we could actually call someone who could respond who wasn't the police. And I can tell you just from my own anecdotal experience, it it, it's hard. Like, I mean, we live in Oakland, like this, this happens, we see people who are struggling. And I don't want to call the police on them, you know, because it's not what they right. need. So I guess, I guess that's the thing. It's like, you don't want to um, not talk about it. You don't want to just avoid it, because then you're letting the Republicans define you. Um, and you don't want to just say, well, I'm not for defund, because then all that does is <laughs> kind of give more airtime to their attack, right? But they're, because you're saying, yeah, you're saying it, <laughs> and you're you're repeating yeah, the attack. Yeah, we did see is, that. You know, half you're doing the work exactly. for the other person. Yeah, uh, that's side. we did see that. But I think there are examples um, that we can see in what's happened. Some of what's happening now, I, I can't remember now. I think it was the New Mexico, the the New Mexico woman who just won in Deb Holland's seat. The, the yeah, you can there. look yeah. there to some of the messaging that she did, which, again, it wasn't offensive. It was about actually leaning into the value of what we're for. And I think that's what we have to do. If you do that and you call out, like, why the Republicans are doing this, it, it does help. And honestly, we need repetition. And, like, I think this study shows that um, there's, you, you know, there's a lot of repetition on the right. You can see, even when you just look at the word clouds, like, it, it they really are um, – very good at repeating a message. And I think while we see that with like a pre-existing conditions, we haven't really seen that with a, a really positive forward-looking message or narrative on our side. I want to just uh, uh, drill down on what the Republican strategy is here. And and, and you say, uh, your study says half of, half of the Republican ads were based on name calling. By name calling, we've, we've kind of alluded to it a couple of times here. You would, you would say you have some reference to Pelosi, which has been going on for well yeah. over a decade now, Pelosi or AOC, or use the word socialist or extreme or extremist or defund yeah. the police. Um, but isn't the message that that kind of works? I mean, should should Democrats uh, re repeat that strategy and, and say, you know, Josh Hawley or Ted Cruz or what have you? I mean, I, I don't know what the or, or uh, you know, uh, QAnon or whatever. What should, should is that a strategy that works? Should they replicate that, or should they? Uh, what, what, what does that? What message is that? Sentence? Oh, you're asking, does the name calling strategy work? Yes, yes. Um, I think it does work on their side. I and I think on our side, um, I would say again that we do have to call it out for what it is. But what we're trying to do, um, is mobilize this multiracial coalition. It's not enough to just uh, name call the other side. It has to be done in a way, like I'm saying, in an overall story where we're actually telling them what we're going to deliver. We're, it, it is an inspiring story around what are you going to get if you vote for us. And here's what the other guys are doing. And, you know, we have to figure out how to how to pull how to definitely how to um, 
how to connect what they're doing right now with voters in such a way that they understand that the GOP is essentially uh, like a sideshow to the project of governing for the next, for the future. <laughs> and so we do have to figure out like a story to, to couch all of that in it. But there, I, I don't want us to do the exact thing because again, what we find is it gives that more airtime. Like if all you do is you legitimize yeah. it, as you say. You, once you say, once you repeat what they're saying, then you yeah, like you know, just just an example is like if you just do a bunch of ads about QAnon, 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 QAnon. Like people are searching for QAnon. It's like you're just saying QAnon too many times, you know. So you, we have to be careful not to um, just repeat because voters voters hear it and they don't hear the differential of like, oh, you're saying QAnon's bad. They just hear QAnon, and it just is another. Um, time that they're hearing that. <laughs> so we want to we want to um, avoid that pit pitfall. <laughs> Speaking of pitfalls and things that are repeated a lot, the Democrats face a bit of a problem. They spent $32 million in uh, 2020 on ads that mention the word Trump. Uh, Donald Trump will not be on the ballot in 2020. In 2022. Um, mm-hmm. Recently, at, uh, 2022, I'm sorry. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, I recently talked to Jamie Harrison on this mm-hmm. very podcast, the DNC chair, about this. And I asked them, what should they do about Trump? Trump about wasn't business? on the ballot in 18 either, right? And and Democrats uh, really- But he was in office and you could talk about him then. Yeah, well, well, we can still talk about Trump. I mean, he's still present. The, every Republican right now seems to be, uh, you know, bowing down to him at, at this point in time. So it's not like he's gone away. Um, and, and he is threatening that he's going to run in 2024. So he's still an omnibus- Anonymous uh, presence in the uh, in the Republican Party. Jen, to paraphrase the sound of music, what do we do about Trump? What do we do about Maria? <laughs> Sorry, that, <laughs> that really didn't work, but but we tried. Go ahead. What do we <laughs> What do we do about gonna... Trump? What do Democrats do about Trump? I'm doing nothing about Trump, but what do Democrats do about Trump? Yeah, I'm not. I'm resisting to the desire to break out in song. Joe. So, um, thank yeah, you for that. I, I, that would be lovely. You, you, <laughs> um, I, you missed the, D- D- Diane Feinstein did some free form rap on this Oh podcast. my goodness. I, I, no, she, she, I may, I, I may. <laughs> okay. So what do we do about Trump? <sighs> um, I, I think I would try to lump Trump <laughs> together with the GOP. So it's no difference. You know, there's no difference between them. They've taught, they've tethered themselves to him, as Jamie Harrison said, um, they have tethered themselves to him. And so, um, that should be how we paint them. Um, if we need to mention Trump, which I'm not sure we do, but if we need to mention Trump, it should be Trump and the GOP. It should always be Trump and the Republicans. It's, we need to brand them, actually for what they have become like i said it's uh, an extremist party completely out step out of step with americans out of step with majority rule um you know a party that has, is not delivering anything for the future is not speaking to all of the crises and problems that this country and world are facing so it's a it's a sideshow it's a clown show honestly it's it's irrelevant to the project of governing that's what we've seen play out in um Biden's administration so far they're they're not they're not coming to the table how can you work in a bipartisan way with people who are um not 
not showing up as an actual party. <laughs> like they're, they're not actually showing yeah. up in the in that way. So I would say, um, don't give Trump any more airtime than he already has. I think we, what we've seen is the value of Trump not having as much airtime as he, as he once did on social platforms and in the media. Um, I would, I would lump them together and sink the whole ship. That's what I would try to do. And one of the things that you saw in the, saw in the study with the, uh, pricked my ears was that uh, some of the Democratic ads were not culturally competent. And one of them was here in California in lovely mm-hmm. Orange County. Uh, the, the Democrat incumbent uh, there, Harley Ruta, spent $5 million more than his Republican challenger, Michelle mm-hmm. Steele, who mm-hmm. won the race. Uh, but they were spent on, as, as the study says, anti-China ads against a woman who is Asian American and in a district that's 18% API, mm-hmm. uh, Asian Pacific Islander. Um, was, was Ruta an outlier on that or, or were there a lot of, was was there a lot of that happening? We did see a fair amount of that in districts that are heavily API and heavily Latino. So they're more, they're more anecdotal as we've pulled them out because we've tried to look for examples, but I think that's a, that is a problem that the party certainly needs to reckon with. And, um, you know, we saw, you saw it actually, I don't know if you saw the autopsy report that came out in the New York Times this morning from a yes. coalition of groups and um, some people of color led groups who who flag this as a problem. You know, we we have to see Latino, API, Black audiences um, as audiences that need to be persuaded and not audiences that you can just take for granted that they're going to vote for the Democrat anyway. So I, I think that um, I think that, you know, the other thing we saw is, you know, like, um, Republican, Latina Republicans using Latino run firms to run effective messaging in a Florida district that really was honestly similar to a race class narrative that I talked about. Um, she used that framework and and it's and it worked in that district against, you know, the Democrat who largely talked about pre-existing conditions. So I think um, we, we did see this and this, this is an, a, a problem that we need to reckon with where I think the Democratic Party needs to see they need to hire people of color um, who run these ad campaigns to know that, I mean, they be able to flag like this message isn't going to work like it's not it's not actually going to work in this aapi district to be any message that's trying to be anti-china you have to be really careful with that kind of messaging it it, it's very it's a very fine line and it's very easy for it to come across as xenophobic and actually really turn people off so i i think it's um i would say that is something that the everybody who's looking ahead to 2022 really needs to reckon with. Um, and it's also, you know, it's, it's, it's a difference between, you know, like I was kind of saying before people see a persuadable voter and they think of a white voter. And what we're trying to say is that there are a lot of persuadable voters um, they're very diverse and it's it may be that you're persuading an AAPI voter who voted for Trump to come back and vote for Biden this time or to voted for uh, Michelle Steele to vote for a Democrat this time. Um, but you also are persuading people to vote at all. You know, there's also uh, like millions of people who didn't vote in these races. And we're doing an analysis way to win. So we'll circle back with you um, when we get some data on like what was the drop off, you know, from people who voted for Biden, who who then voted for um, 
the congressional people, like how many of our own Democratic base didn't actually vote for the Democrats who were running for Congress, even though they voted for Biden, and how many people didn't come out and vote at all. And that's where we need to go. And our messaging should 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 look to how we can mobilize and bring a bigger audience of those people out. But that is a very, a di- very diverse voter audience. And you're, you're thinking that, I mean, one of the messages of this is that Democrats spent too much try- time trying to woo uh, suburban white voters. Yeah. Correct? Yeah. And and I mean, I mean, suburban white voters are important, so I, I don't want to come across like it's not important. But I think what I'm trying to say is that um, we we tend to sort of slice and dice our messaging too much, and we should really be looking at how we can how we can say things, like how we can tell a bigger story that's actually mobilizing and as persuasive to like a bigger group of voters across white, black, Latino, API, et cetera. How concerned, you know, we're, we're, all, we're gearing up for 2022 right now. How concerned are you for the Democrats? Well, <laughs> look, um, we, we don't have history on our side, so we know that we can look at the history and see that it's only been really two times in our history that a president's party has, um, been able to gain seats in the following midterm from being elected at the presidential level. And I, when you look at those times, you do see it's, it's, it's a historic time. You know, there's a galvanizing force. It's, it's a war, you know, it's a, it's a, a big narrative. Those are the things that we saw it was FDR and George W. Bush. So for us, I think what I would say is like, we're, we're, um, I don't think anyone can argue with the fact that we're in historic times, right? We are coming out of a once in a generation pandemic. We just won an election, um, that had the highest voter turnout in over a hundred years. So that's historic. Like I said, we we historically elected two senators from Georgia, a young Jewish man, a, a black pastor, um, in a runoff election that was literally designed to keep us out of power. So we're living in historic times. So that means we can do historic things. And that's what I want us to go into 2022, realizing that we do have a wind at our back in some ways. We we did win this historic election. We do have trifecta power. We all of the policies that Biden is pushing are wildly popular in all the states that we need to be winning in. And so we we can, I feel like we can actually do it, but we we it's not going to be politics as usual that's going to do it. We we can't just do the same thing we did over the last couple of cycles, especially at this congressional level. We really need to break it up, do something different. I think leaning into more of the way to win that we have been um, advocating. Good point. <laughs> Good point. We're beautifully slipped in the bubble. <laughs> yeah. Jen, thank you so much for being on It's All Political, and let's hope I didn't screw it up this <laughs> Thank time. you so much, Joe. I'd like to thank you all for listening and hope that you and your families are safe and healthy. I'd like to thank Jen for joining us today, and I wish he had broken out in the song. I'd like to thank the King, Webby Award-winning producer, King Kaufman, for producing today's episode. And of course, a shout out to that music you're hearing our theme song, that's Cattle Call, and it's written by Randy Clark and performed by Randy Clark and Crow Song. And remember, no matter whether you think the Democrats should talk more about bipartisanship or whether you think bipartisanship is a crock, it's all political.